going to take a little break from the earnings to talk some crypto that begins with Bitcoin as the biggest still digital asset makes a huge bounce from below 30,000 stalling out a little bit here. Let's figure out how to think about the price action lately. Ari Paul is joining us, co-founder and chief investment officer at Block Tower Capital. Ari, good to have you back on the show. Thanks for being here. Always a pleasure, Oliver. Thank you. Thank you. So walk me through the way you're thinking about it right now, Ari. We had this pretty stunning drop-off and sell-off in Bitcoin, and then a pretty incredible bounce here, too, that just totally, it seems, ripped some shorts out or something. Walk me through how you're thinking about the recent action. Yeah, so I, I'll, I'll zoom pretty far out. So Q3, Q4 of last year was Western Hemisphere institutional buying. That was people like MicroStrategy, Michael Saylor kind of accumulating. Then January, February, we saw Asia got involved. We saw kimchi premium, meaning Bitcoin was trading at a premium in South Korea. Retail got in, Asia got in. Uh, and then we had kind of the end of, of what I think was a mini cycle. So typically crypto cycles, you mm. get kind of wealth created in Bitcoin. It flows down the risk curve. The last leg is always... Uh, or usually at least Asian retail kind of uh, momentum trading the last leg. So we had some excess. We had you know things like Dogecoin going crazy, signs of excess in crypto. Um, retail got washed out. We had uh, China kind of smacking down on exchange activity, OTC activity, pushing a lot of retail as well as some whales out uh, who were Chinese Bitcoin holders. Um, they were selling. Uh, we had Bitcoin hash rate fall, something like uh, difficulty adjusted at 45%, hash rate fell more than 50%. Mm -hmm. I think we've kind of reset the cycle. So now we're trying to find a base for Bitcoin. We had a lot of value bids stacked below 30K. Um, this was a short covering rally. Uh, Binance actually printed 48K. So there, were, there was about a billion dollars of shorts liquidated. Um, and so I think we're, we're kind of in an accumulation mode very, very broadly. And uh, basically, once we run out of those weekend sellers, we see Western institutions buying a little bit every week. So it's kind of a broad accumulation phase that I'm pretty confident next year we're substantially higher. Okay, uh, Ari, let's talk about the connection between price action and what happened with the China crackdown of miners. As you mentioned, difficulty and a hash rate fell. You and I have had conversations about uh, the uh, this process and the mining tech in the past. Uh, I trust and rely on your analysis as much as anybody's out there. Can you explain to my viewers who may not be particularly familiar with this, maybe they casually hold Bitcoin, Bitcoin. What is that connection between hash rate and the decline that we saw in difficulty with price? Because to some degree, it seems like it makes sense then with all this pressure in China that it might drop. But then at the same time, is if Bitcoin's whole thing is about limited supply, then if fewer people are mining, you'd think, hey, why is this bad for price? Yeah, so the cause and effect between price and hash rate is, is still hotly debated and, and pretty uh, subtle. Um, and I, I'll, I, it's, it seems like kind of both can, can be leading variables. So hmm. if we look at price action of Bitcoin over the last few months, um, basically the sell-off happened, uh, for Bitcoin at least, very early in the path of negative news out of China. So it seems like probably Chinese whales insiders kind of knew what was coming or at least feared what was coming. And so we got kind of the first hints of negative headlines out of China. Bitcoin basically completed its price correction, put in almost its low. I mean, we got down to around 30K in early May. And Bitcoin, that was kind of the low. We did make a slightly marginal lower low a few weeks after that. but. Um, and then during that time, hash rate was falling, all the negative news was coming out. But basically the price led the hash rate decline. 
And now we're seeing hash rates start to recover as those Chinese miners have shipped their hardware out of China to places like uh, Texas, like the Pacific Northwest. Um, a lot of those miners are relocating to the U.S. because in the U.S. we actually have very cheap renewable electricity in many parts of the country, uh, particularly mm. Texas, where there's uh, wind often at zero, zero dollars per megawatt hour, um, mm. as weird as that is. So uh, it's a little, ca it's, it's, the cause and effect is tricky, but generally hash power follows price. And, okay. and it's a very simple mechanism, which is as price falls, it becomes less profitable to mine. Uh, the least uh, efficient miners turn off, right. hash rate falls. Uh, difficulty then adjusts. So the Bitcoin network itself adjusts difficulty roughly every two weeks, and we saw that happen. So basically, um, Bitcoin mining was progressing slower because network difficulty was unchanged, hash power falls. That means the average block time goes from 10 minutes to 15 to 20 minutes. Then the network difficulty drops, drops and recalibrates. Mm. And so we're, we're almost at equilibrium. I think Bitcoin blocks are still averaging a little bit longer than 10 minutes maybe, but we're kind of at equilibrium now. And most likely over the next six months, we see hash rate continue to climb back as that hardware gets put back online. So as the causality between price and difficulty is a little bit murky, it sounds like, Ari, uh, your, your view to some extent is that that pressure from price uh, stemmed from early selling as almost kind of a way to uh, get ahead of whatever regulatory pressure was coming from China. Right now, we've got some talk here again where some lawmakers are really focusing in on Bitcoin and there's the tether thing that's separate but then people just generally talking about Bitcoin for example uh, we had Elizabeth Warren uh, again uh, talking the senator about having to protect people I mean if uh, or let me ask it this way I guess should China's uh, crack down or its regulatory efforts be any kind of a blueprint for what could happen here no, no. Um, so there's a lot of regulatory news happening with different regulatory agencies. And, um, it, you know, it, it, people in the TradFi world were, were well aware of how distinct different regulators are. The SEC is not the DOJ, is not the CFTC. And crypto, sometimes this all gets lumped together. But you've got uh, a lot of rulemaking coming out of Europe in the form of things like FATF uh, draft proposals that will then have to see how that turns into legislation in local jurisdictions. You've got um, the DOJ investigation into Tether. That's its own issue. You have uh, the SEC and CFTC uh, both talking about bringing action, not not new rules. Both are saying it's about just ap applying existing legal and regulatory frameworks to things like offshore exchanges, to unregistered security offerings. Uh, and then you have what you um, kind of the talk of the town at the moment, which is the infrastructure bill. So the U.S. infrastructure bill, um, a uh, amendment was added that would add potentially tax reporting requirements to non-custodial wallets. What that means is basically a software provider of a Bitcoin wallet might under this legislation have tax reporting requirements. Mm. Um, we don't know what final form this will take. We don't know what that means in practice. It's very, very vague language and no one has any idea what this would look like as an implementation okay. um, or what enforcement would look like. Uh, so a lot of regulatory headlines, they are real, they are meaningful. I wouldn't dismiss them as trivial. But none of them are really existential risks and nothing like China. So China has, has China rolled out, is, is rolling out CBDC, their central centralized uh, digital currency. And they're kind of, you know, they kind of have banned Bitcoin. Um, not completely, but right. as we've seen from, you know, almost all mining is out of China, almost all trading activity, most of the OTC activity is gone. We don't see anything like that for Europe and the US currently. Yeah. None of the proposals coming out of the Western hemisphere are, are really anti-crypto. They're really about, hey, 
let's apply existing financial regulation to this industry. Yeah, I like the point about uh, the inclusion of uh, that uh, within the infrastructure bill, a really important uh, little nugget there. Uh, Ari, so maybe more important then is back to, as you described, the Western Hemisphere adoption, that big, big move from the end of last year to this one uh, did center around the last leg of it, the Tesla adoption, and then more balance sheet talk from some public uh, companies, obviously MicroStrategy, but Tesla was kind of the big surprise and that got so many people excited about this. Do you think that for Bitcoin to keep moving higher, we need incremental news like that? Are we at a point where we need to see more adoption from public companies or uh, pensions or somebody? Do we need that kind of constant drip of adoption? Uh, so yes, we need it, although I actually don't think we need the headlines at this point. So we need we need the buying and the buying is happening. So. The, my thesis on where we are in the market cycle comes from the fact that, um, I mean, you look at the equity deals, you look at the SPAC deals in crypto, basically there's massive capital flowing into the cryptocurrency industry. Right now, a lot of it is in equity. It's flowing into things like Coinbase, BlockFi, FTX. Um, basically everyone raising money in crypto, whether it's a fund, a company is having cash thrown at them. Uh, and part of that is because there's this massive demand in the Western Hemisphere from both Wall Street, institutional players, a ton of traditional funds, people like Point72, have very publicly said they're getting into crypto in a big way. And growth equity in VC is the easiest because there's no operational, custodial, or regulatory concerns. Okay. But that shows the appetite that is there. Uh, and everyone is trying to push out ETFs. Um, everyone is, you know, basically the appetite is there, the buying is there, and it just progresses very slowly. Um, we know how bureaucratic it can be to get a public company to add Bitcoin to a balance sheet. Sure. You know, we Michael Saylor and Elon Musk were able to do it as kind of they, you know, they're, they're uh, the, the king CEOs. There aren't that many public firms, uh, you know, like that. Hmm. So it's just, it's a slower road for everyone else, but we see it happening week by week, just these ongoing capital flows in the industry, some of which go into Bitcoin and Ethereum, some of which go into uh, the equity side, which still ends up making its way into those assets. Like when Coinbase employees are selling their equity to ARK, to Kathy Wood, what do they do with that money? Some of that ends up going into the, you know, the liquid assets themselves. Hmm. Now, Ari, what you're describing for the most part here are investors. Uh, as we think about point seventy two, et cetera, these are people that are in institutions that want to make money off of Bitcoin. They're investors or they're traders. The difference that I see between that and Elon or MicroStrategy, of course, is that's more of like a using it as a rock, right? And putting it on a balance sheet, saying we actually just want this to be here as a potential hedge to what might happen on the other side of our balance sheet as Elon talked about that in the uh, B word conference uh, with uh, Jack and Kathy. So uh, that difference here, I mean, is that something that's more sustainable for the dream digital gold scenario? Because in my view, that narrative has been taking some hits here. What is your view on that as a narrative for Bitcoin still? Yeah, I, I, I think it's very much alive. So the, this is a common discussion, the financialization of these assets, how useful is that to other value propositions, right? We can, we can say, oh man, people are just speculating on this. They're treating it like a casino. They're trying to make money off it. Sure. Is that actually accretive? Does that drive fundamental value? And the short answer is yes. So as we know in traditional markets, liquidity is by itself valuable, right? Okay, fair, a, a yep. common heuristic gets used as a private market will trade it, call it a 30% discount to a public market just because that liquidity difference. So, um, you know, when a pension is considering Bitcoin as potentially a digital gold to store value, a key question is, can we get in and out of it, right? Like if we have a billion dollars of this on our balance sheet, 
does exiting over a day mean we're going to take a 20% haircut? And so having uh, the derivatives, the liquidity, the depth of market, um, all of that contributes to this as a financial store of value, uh, to being a liquid store of value. It basically, it all kind of is accretive to all these other use cases, even for a medium of exchange. Um, the more money is in it, and frankly, the traditional speculators, a nice thing is they tend to be more mean reverting betters rather than retail momentum chasers. What I mean by that is when uh, the macro hedge funds speculate on Bitcoin, they'll buy saying we're looking for a 30% rally, then we're going to sell. So that dampens the volatility, which contributes to Bitcoin's use case mm. in kind of every other way, right? The more stable, this is still a volatile asset, yep. but it is gradually trending towards lower volatility. I really like the point about how the trading and speculation is part of that uh, adoption, right? Where uh, that uh, endorsement of it to some extent uh, is gonna be important, liquidity important. Ari, the thing that I'm still having trouble with with the gold narrative, to your point, right, is gradually, over time, it should be made Making progress and the only thing that we know about gold as a financial instrument is that it's very reliable with real interest rates so we've talked a little bit about this on Twitter but I wanted to get your thoughts on this here because when I look at the 30-day correlation smoothed out with a six-month average since Bitcoin's existence there's nothing here that looks like progress to me or it looks like it's still totally random Whereas for gold over this 10 year period, it's very reliable. It's done exactly what it should relative to real interest rates. It's almost always negative. So at what point do we have to, uh, you know, un kind of stay on this narrative of the digital gold? Because it's not gonna flip a switch, right? It's got to adopt and change over time. What do you make of the fact that it hasn't changed in its relationship with real interest rates over the last 10 years? So I don't, I don't know that Bitcoin, um, so it's an interesting framing. So we're, we're defining digital gold as, as uh, which I agree with, by the way, that uh, digital, that the way to think about gold is as uh, in relation to real interest rates. Okay. Um, it's interesting that that wasn't, that isn't totally adopt, accepted, right? There's a lot of people who think gold is correlated with inflation and it's a pretty weak correlation. That's right. And the idea of gold being a play on real interest rates, um, you know, I don't know, maybe that's 20, 30 years old. I think Warren Buffett had an essay about that in the in the 70s, but it wasn't a widespread view. I mean, I, I've, I've like talked, you know, when I've, conversed with uh, other endowments, for example, that even that frame, even today, that framing isn't like ubiquitous. So I don't know if Bitcoin is ever going to be super highly correlated with real interest rates. Um, I think for most people, that's actually not what they, uh, that's not what, what I mean when I say that it's digital gold. I think people think of that as a um, long-term meaningful hedge against appreciation of fiat, against uh, meaningful high, or, or high inflation rates, exactly what high means. But in other words, I don't know that people are thinking about oh man, this, this didn't rocket when inflation expectations or real interest rates moved 20 basis points. Um, I think it's more about the longer term, more substantial moves. Um, yeah, I don't think people are gonna swear off Bitcoin because of you know 15 minute correlations or one day correlations. Sure. This is real, people are thinking much longer term, much bigger picture. They're generally, they're not using it to hedge their whole portfolio, right? They'll have a 5% position that they, uh, for, for certainly for a public company that they're thinking of as a multi-year Ari, the last thing that I'll ask you then, uh, if Bitcoin is that kind of much longer term uh, hedge to uh, depreciation of, of fiat, we saw the inflation risk here get cut off since the June FOMC. Uh, are you worried that Powell will kill the long term case for Bitcoin if he is surprisingly hawkish, if the markets underestimated his willingness to uh, raise rates or push forward the timeline? 
Yeah, yes. So in a, you know, uh, medium term time frame, call it one year, uh, I think that policy absolutely directly impacts the price of Bitcoin. And if if the consensus became that we're headed for a disinflationary world for the next five years, um, there would be less demand for Bitcoin. So absolutely, that is a risk to the price action. I will say, though, the bigger theme and the reason why, like we can look at these correlation charts, but but that kind of misses the forest for the trees, which is Bitcoin being up currently 40x over the last five, six years. Right, so so uh, it's important to kind of distinguish these two things: the, the secular trend of massive parabolic growth over Bitcoin's entire history, versus these kind of much shorter time frame correlations. That secular trend is being driven by people viewing Bitcoin as just an alternative to fiat, and 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 those concerns can be driven by depreciation concerns, but hmm. also capital control, surveillance state. I mean, if you're in China right now, Bitcoin is arguably more appealing than it's ever been. Um, that there's been net selling from China, no question. But at some point, that probably reverses, right? If Chinese people, the the, uh, the closer China is to a true surveillance state, the less freedom they have with their money, the more demand there is for an alternative just in case. Certainly the elites, we know this, the elites always will look for an offshore banking kind of alternative. I mean, the Panama Papers showed basically every politician in the world doesn't trust <laughs> their own government's uh, sure. banking system. So. Um, yeah, so so there are all these kind of there's there's myriad use cases, and I could see Bitcoin doing well even in a deflation, disinflationary world. But all else equal, Bitcoin benefits from inflation fears, no question. All right, always good to get your thoughts here. Thanks for walking us through uh, the different subjects. I got a few others, but we got to go because we're out of time. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much, Ari Paul, co-founder and CIO at Block Tower Capital.